We've, we have gone through John for now a long time, maybe 60 weeks in total, or getting close to it, and I'm not sure, hey buddy, uh, I'm not sure if there's been a passage I've enjoyed more, honestly, than, than this one in regard to what God does in people's lives. Now, there are lots, right? Like, I, can't, I guess I can't say the it is finished is not my favorite because that's kind of the, you know, the, 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 the high point. But, but in regard to the narrative and what you see happen in people's lives, this one, to me, is, is stunning. I think so often in the Christian life, we are afraid to run small risks for the Lord, let alone big ones. We, often, we, at times, might fear our identification with Jesus because we are afraid of what might come of it, our loss of job, our loss of status, just the fact that we won't uh, be in the in crowd anymore, but we would be in the out crowd. We try to find ways to make our faith compatible with the world, and it doesn't work because our faith isn't compatible with the world. These two things war against one another. And the Christian life is, in many ways, for us, it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of failure in learning grace and, and going again and going again and going again. But, but there are these moments, and they become pivotal for us as followers of Jesus, where we can't stay quiet. We, we, can't, we can't live in a shadow. We can't, we can't hide. We must do something. And we're offered, I would say, we have opportunities like that in our lives really all the time to, to speak, to identify with, to connect with Jesus. But at times we do them and we do them well. At times we do them and we do them poorly. At times we run from them because there is that level of fear. And this continues, not just at our conversion when we identify in whatever way that, that, that happens, that moment for, for us, but even as we just live our lives in Christ, we have moments of failure where we, we could, with resolve, speak about the Lord, and we don't. And we have moments uh, by spirit, of Spirit-empowered success where we step in and we do what God would have for us. We talked about that at Peter's denials of Jesus. That ultimately, it's still Jesus and how He stands, not how we stand. But we're introduced reintroduced to Nicodemus, and in John, introduced to Joseph this morning. Two men who were of Jewish leadership, who for some time now had been curious about Jesus. They weren't antagonistic about him. They, didn't, they, 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 they really liked him. They liked him. They were persuaded in some way by his teaching, but they were still Jewish men in leadership. And there was this, <clears throat> this identity issue, wasn't there? There was this kind of push and pull between who they were and their religious identity and being associated as a Sanhedrin leader, being associated with the, with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, and, and this identification with Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and what he was saying and what he was doing. And so we, are, we, we were introduced to Nicodemus all the way back in John chapter 3. And just this tension that exists between what is known and maybe we could even say comfortable and stepping over and being with the Lord. And we know that tension, don't we? We know that in many ways. Uh, we, we might go, well, you know, 
I, I'm, <clears throat> I'm fine being a Christian. I just don't want anybody to know. Uh, you know, like, I, I'm fine following Jesus. I just, I just, I just don't want to be baptized. Like, that's, that's kind of, that's a big de- declaration, and I'm not the most comfortable with that. I, I want to do this. I don't want to do that. And that happens for really all of us, all of us in some way. We just go, it's more comfortable to be here than it is to be identified with Jesus. And what we get to do today is see, in this moment at Jesus' burial, how these men moved and how they then identified with Jesus. We're going to see Joseph of Arimathea. We're going to see Nicodemus, and we're going to ask ourselves the question, you know, so what? Basically, looking at each character, some of their story, and then asking that kind of question. So you've heard the passage. This is finishing up John chapter 19. John chapter 19 gets us through the crucifixion, the death, burial of Jesus. John chapter 20 begins the resurrection. As I said, we're just going to have to mess with our cultural timelines because we're going to have a resurrection sermon next week, and I know it's Palm Sunday, and then we're going to have like the, the... the Jesus' words on Easter Sunday, timed it out the best I could, but we're just going to be living in this for a while still, so that's fine. You guys can handle it. You're all uh, big kids. But let's start with Joseph of Arimathea. He was a wealthy man with a new tomb who was a part of the Sanhedrin. We don't actually hear much about him in John. We hear more about him in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he all sh- he shows up. Isn't it interesting that this guy shows up in all the Gospels? Like, that doesn't happen a lot. You don't have the same characters in all the Gospels, but what you do begin to see is that around the elements of the crucifixion and the burial, they really start to identify who's around and what's going on. And that would kind of make sense, right? Because those, those, those moments are kind of locked into time. They're, they have characters, and they have witnesses, and they have people. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about Joseph of Arimathea, what he did. So let's just look at several of these, and then we'll see some more color around who this guy was. Arimathea is a region just north of Jerusalem. Like it wasn't, wasn't too far away. It wasn't Jerusalem proper, but up north. <clears throat> Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. So we have his means from Matthew, a a rich man from Arimathea. And he has a tomb. He has a new tomb that was cut into the rock. If you ever go to Israel, there some people will take you to the garden tomb and they'll say, this is where Jesus might have been crucified. Actually, it isn't where he might have been crucified. Those are old tombs, not new tombs. Those are like tombs from centuries before Jesus. <clears throat> and so he had a new tomb and he said, I'll get Jesus there. He talked to Pilate, receives the body. Mark chapter 15, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. You hear that? Took courage. He, 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 wasn't, he, he was no longer hiding. He was no longer quiet. It was no longer secret discipleship. But he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
we have in Luke chapter 23. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Do you, do you see the, the, really the symmetry about how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all speak about Joseph? I can, I'm going to keep saying Josephus in my head because Joseph and Nicodemus, and I just merge these guys, and then there's the Jewish historian, Josephus, and I've said this so many times already. It's like, oh, yeah, so we're going to talk about Josephus today. I'm like, no, we're not. Uh, so we have Matthew saying that he was a rich man who was a disciple of Jesus. We have Mark saying he was a respected member of the council who was looking for the kingdom, who then took courage. We have Luke saying that he was a, a good and righteous man who did not want Jesus killed and was looking for the kingdom of God. And then we have, uh, we have John saying of Joseph that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. But in all of these things, what do you see is a man who, who really, you can, you, can, you can feel the Lord drawing him, right? You can, you can, like like he, he's, he's curious about who Jesus is, and he's listening for Jesus, and he, and, and he was looking for the kingdom and what God was going to be doing through the Jewish Messiah. And so he had all of these things kind of lined up, but it had never really gotten, we could say, in whatever ways, never really was made public. It was never really out there. It was just something that was written about him, because yes, he was good and righteous, like all these things. But then there was this moment at the burial of Jesus where he could no longer just be kind of a, a quiet and curious disciple because both he was an upright Jewish man and he knew that Sabbath was coming and he knew that the body had to be tended to. And he also knew that he had the means both financially, because he had the new tomb, the geography, the proximity, because it was close to where Jesus was crucified, and the relationship because of his status as a Jewish leader with Pilate. And so he is, it was almost like, remember when we, we went through, we, we were looking at Esther, and it's like, well, maybe for such a time as this, right? It's kind of that moment where it's like, hey, bro, I don't know if there's anybody else who, who checks all the boxes to be the one with the relationship, the one with the means, and the one with the new tomb who could get this thing done before the Sabbath begins. I think we got one guy. And have you ever, you ever you know, kind of been in a moment where you're like, oh, okay, right? And there's that take courage moment where you say, it's, it's, a, it's time for me to do what, I, what it seems to be the Lord has put me here in this moment at this time to do. And so what does he do? He puts Jesus in a new tomb. In that place, verse 41, where he was crucified, there was a garden. This is not the Garden of Gethsemane on the other side of the Kidron Valley. It's not that garden, but there was another garden. In that place was a garden, and there was a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So you can see all of these elements kind of coming together for Joseph of Arimathea to step out into the light and say, I'll, I'll tend to Jesus. Joseph may not have known, I won't know, that in, in so doing, even what happened there, a part of one of the servant songs in Isaiah was fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 9, speaking of the suffering servant, they made his grave with the wicked, 
and with a rich man in his death. And with a rich man in his death. His grave with a rich man in his death. Right? Died between criminals. Buried in a rich man's new tomb. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You can see in this just the the powerful, gracious, glorious, and good hand of God where Joseph was the right man at the right time, that all that had gone on even before that, all his curiosity about the Messiah, all his interest in Jesus, and that kind of, even you saw in Nicodemus in chapter 3, that kind of secret lurking, coming at night, all that interest in Jesus comes to a moment where Joseph goes, Seems like I'm the guy for this. And even as he steps into that, he is fulfilling what was spoken by Isaiah about what would happen to the suffering servant. As we look back, we see as Jesus. We see that also in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, he laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut into the rock. The hasty placing, hasty because it had to be, of Jesus into the new tomb fulfilled Isaiah. Now, why does this matter? Why, like, why, why all this? We can't go, oh yeah, Jesus was buried. I mean, the, the burial account, right, 38 through 42, that's all we get in it. But what do you see is you see Joseph, who had yet to be identified out in the council with the Lord. Now he was. And he steps in to secure Jesus' body with Pilate. He steps in to help to bury Jesus' body in his tomb. And you have to think in that moment, what was at risk? What was at risk for a man like Joseph to step out into the light and say, I'll take care of him? If you think about it, you think of the risk that we run all the time to just go, you know what, no, that's not, that's not right. And even sometimes the, 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 the scorn that might be suffered. Like the, we could just say at this point in time in history that enthusiasm for Jesus as the Messiah was not at all time highs. The whole moment that had gone on that we had been going over for weeks now, all of this was, was done in part to teach a lesson about saying you're the son of God. So the hostility toward the Messiah was at fever pitch, not the expectation of Jesus as the Messiah, right? Hostility toward Jesus was there and high, and everybody was glad at that moment to see Jesus dead, or so it seemed. And then you have Joseph, and you have to just, right, like this is a little bit of just me going, like he's weighing, right? You weigh the cost, and you go, if I do this, there's no turning back. If I do this, like I am, I'm known as somebody who belongs to Jesus, and it's worth it, and it's worth it, right? Whatever consequence comes after that moment, Joseph had just laid aside, and he did what the Lord had uniquely prepared him to be able to do, to step out, to secure the body, to bury it in his own tomb. And through all of that, we have more things fulfilled about Jesus, the suffering servant, for us. 
He was forsaking in that moment his status. He was both using his status and forsaking the preservation of his status, wasn't he? He had the relationship. He, he knew how to get to Pilate. I wouldn't have been able to do that. But at the same time, I mean, this is like where people will say to me, like, hey, Hans, could you ask your friend so-and-so to do that? And I'm just like, oh, okay, fine. Like, I'll, like, you know, hey, bro, I'm real sorry, but some people need to know. Like, like you know, there's just that moment where you go, I have the relationship. He uses that. He uses his wealth. He uses the new tomb. This is probably not how he lined out how his day was going to go. But even then, what does he do? He steps out and he identifies no longer in secret as Jesus's. No longer in secret. He was a disciple, but now he steps out and identifies fully with this man. What about Nicodemus? Now, this was a long time ago, but we, even in the room, you're probably familiar with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten or his only son or his one and only, that whoever or whosoever, if you have memorized it back in the day, believe or believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so we remember that. Well, that verse comes in this whole interaction with Nicodemus, who was a Jewish leader. And we get introduced to him early in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus, my buddy would call him Nick at Night, uh, if you remember Nick at Night, but that was like, that was a long time ago now. Uh, so Nicodemus comes by night, and he's curious about what it means to be born again. Remember how he comes to Jesus, and he's like, you're clearly a really good teacher. You, like, like, like there, there's something, like God has sent you here. John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, another man of status. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And he goes back and forth with Jesus in that interaction about being born again. What does it mean to be born again? And you can see in that Nicodemus is intrigued by Jesus. He's interested in Jesus' teaching, but he's a little stumped. In fact, Jesus rebukes him even, and he'll say, like, aren't you a teacher, and you don't understand this? Isn't this your, shouldn't, shouldn't you be aware of how the Spirit comes and how life comes, and yet you just seem confused by it all? And so there's this moment where Nicodemus is interested in Jesus. He's, he wants to come to Jesus. He comes at night because he doesn't want anybody to see him coming during the day. And in John, there is that theme of light and darkness. And darkness is kind of the shrouded understanding of Jesus. And light is the fuller understanding of Jesus. But Nicodemus is now, at John 3, he's in the spot where he's just, we know you've come from God, teach us more. Like, like we see this. And Jesus essentially mildly rebukes him and teaches him about being born again. And he's like, what do you mean be born again? We can't, you know, like, like we can't be born again. Physically, it's impossible. And Jesus just goes, he, he just, he's stunned by Nicodemus' inability to understand what's going on. There's also this time in John chapter 7. He came back, but he only, like, he had like a bit part in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, they're trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. People, people really like Jesus. He's, he's growing in popularity. They're trying to shut him down. They're trying to find ways to get him killed. And so the officers, John 7, 45, the officers came to the chief of priests and the Pharisees and said, and the Pharisees said to them, why did you not bring him? That'd be, why didn't you bring Jesus back? They were supposed to go get Jesus and, and, and like, they were just, they didn't like him. 
The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. So we have this, right? No one ever spoke like this man. Pharisees say what? You believe in him? The crowd does not know the law, or anybody who doesn't know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, in John 7.50, chimes in. And he says something like this. Our, our law... Our law does not judge a man unless he first hears from him what he's doing. Is it, is it wrong? Can we, can we put him into a trial without first having people speak? Like, it's not fair to Jesus to do it this way. And then they rebuke him. And they say, wait a minute. You are also not from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no, nothing good, no prophet comes from Galilee. So, so Nicodemus is there in John chapter 7, essentially trying to... Keep the consequence of Jesus, right? The potential, that the, like the, the, the anger toward Jesus, trying to limit it. He's not really saying, hey, I really like this guy. He's not saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. He's not saying any of those things. He's just trying to kind of get Jesus off the hook on a, on a legal technicality. Well, shouldn't we treat him like this because our law says? And they respond to him with a bit of anger, don't they? Like, who are you, man? Like, like, wait a minute, do you like this guy too? So there's this frustration. So what do you see in John chapter 3? Now watch, watch the story of Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus, and he's curious, and he's talking, and he's interested, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. So that happens in John 3. In John 7, he's now speaking to the Jewish leadership about Jesus, but at the same time that he's doing that, he's not really saying, I, I follow him, or hey guys, this is wrong. He's not, he's not all the way out there doing that. Like, this is wrong. And then we get to John chapter 19. And what do we have in John chapter 19? But Nicodemus there with 75 pounds, roughly, of burial spices to prepare the body of Jesus for burial. And so we move from curious and talking to Jesus at night to really trying to come to his defense, but not in a way that would that would get him in trouble with the Sanhedrin or with the, with the members of the council. And then we move from that to, it's almost, I, 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 I hope, I want to talk to them in heaven, but like, like Joseph and Nicodemus talked. It, it, that's how it feels. Like, like, like they knew each other and that they were like, hey man, it's time. Like I have, I have access to the spices, you have access to the tomb. Who else is going to do this? Because where are the other, think about this, where are the other disciples at this time? Not with Jesus. Like, where are the people who were with him forever? They're not there. Mary Magdalene has been around the entire time. Like, we see that both at the, at the cross, we're going to see that next week at the tomb, and the week after on Easter Sunday at the tomb, that Mary Magdalene is placed right there at the cross, at the resurrection. She's front row center. But Jesus' disciples, the people that he has invested in for three years of his life, they're not there. They're not seeing to it that his body is taken care of. I don't know if they would have even had the means to do it. And so what happens at that time is the people who did stepped out and they did what they could. They did what they should. And they walked into the light their Lord, John chapter 19, 39, Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night. <clears throat> I like that little 
spirit-inspired line by John, who earlier came to Jesus by night when no one else could see him. He now goes, and he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, 75 pounds. This was a lot of spice, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't necessarily uncommon to have that much. It was a lot. It wasn't cheap but to prepare the body in the way that they needed to, according to the burial custom of the Jews, so that they could observe the Passover, or not the Passover, but observe the Sabbath as well. Now, this is, this is an interesting thing, because I'll talk about something that's on the mission field. Like, this is not something that, that we think about a lot, but, but missionaries have this question that they have to ask, which is, how identified with Jesus do people have to be? To be Christians. We, we, we probably think the same thing, but in our kind of loosey-goosey uh, cultural Christianity world, it doesn't feel like the risk is nearly as high. We're just not as, it's just not as big of a deal. So we have, we have, we have Joseph, we have Nicodemus, and these people did. I'll use the word risk. Like they risked a lot to identify themselves with Jesus. But we've already heard Jesus' teaching in other gospels that the one who loses his life finds it, and the one who tries to save his life loses it. So this is just right in keeping with anything Jesus would say about those who follow him. Right? Like, let's just go ahead and be with Jesus because that's way better than trying to preserve some kind of title or status with the council. And whatever comes of that, comes of that. But there is this question when people come to faith, which is like, how, how sure of a declaration do you need to make? And that can get our lexicons really screwy. In fact, that might even be somebody, the way somebody's talked with you, the way somebody's engaged with you about the faith, which is like, well, have you done this? And have you said it this way? And have you done it this way? And have you engaged the Lord this way? And, and we kind of have all these things like, if this happens, then you're in. And missiologists have written over, well, can somebody be culturally attached to one religion, but really truly identify with Jesus? In fact, this is just, you know, this is just the Lord's coincidental timing. Our Bible reading, if you're kind of staying with it, had uh, Naaman or Naaman, the Syrian. Remember if you read about him, and, and he is healed of his leprosy, and he, he's, he's like, I'm in. He's like, but will you please, if you're reading with like Elijah and Elisha, it's almost like the New Testament dudes are just like dropped right into the Old Testament. It's really bizarre as you read, like especially Elisha's ministry, that guy's doing all kinds of stuff that you see in the book of Acts. Like, like, like that's what's really crazy about it. Um, and so his leprosy is healed. He has to dip seven times in the Jordan. Naaman's like, hey, wait a minute, why would you make me, we, got, we have better water than you guys do over here. You're going to make me, you know, like dip in that nasty water? I don't need to do that. It's like, oh yeah, just go into the bayou. You're like, I'm not going into the bayou. Like, there are alligators in there. My wife grew up by a bayou. <clears throat> Literally, there was an alligator two years ago under her car while she was at her parents' house. Yeah, not a small one. Uh, so, like, I, 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 you think I'm joking. I'm not joking. Like, there are certain waters around, you know, South Louisiana you don't dip in because you're not getting back whatever was dipped. And so Naaman the Syrian, he will say, listen, please have mercy on me. I'm going to go back with my master and he's going to bow to a false god and he's going to use me to support him. Please know that that's not me worshiping that God. Will you have mercy on me? I'm in with you. I follow your God. But, but as I do this, just recognize. You, you, you can even hear kind of the conscience shift in him where he's like, it is no longer okay to worship false gods. Your God healed me. Your God saved me. 
but I still have this official role where I help here. Will you have mercy on me? We read that this week in our Bible reading plan. And so we have all these things, which is like, well, how identified do you have to be? How much do you have to recognize yourself with Jesus? All of those kinds of things can play into our head. And you can find, I have a whole book. I've never read it. It's this thick, and that's why I haven't never read it. Um, on what's called insider movements and how many, like, can you, can you really follow Jesus and, and, and not identify with him in any way? I'm not answering that question for you right now. So what I did instead of trying to answer that question for us, as I was thinking about this passage, and I'll even pull it up because I just screenshot lots of things. Um, I was talking to a man I love, and I've mentioned him before, who served amongst the Middle East for many, many years. And I said, hey, I'm prepping this sermon, and I just need some help. I need some help because what we're talking about with Joseph and Nicodemus is something on a mission field that you run into a lot. You run into how people respond to Jesus and in what ways are official and what ways are unofficial. Certain missionaries are going to expect a certain kind of response. Certain sending organizations want certain kind of numbers back. There's all these kinds of things as, as you go out that people want to know about. Even when I fill out the Acts 29 covenant renewal form every year. They want to know, like, how many people have you baptized? How many of this? You know, what's your budget? Like, they ask all those kinds of things. Uh, they want all that information. So I asked this man, I said, please, help me, help me think about this. Clearly, you can be a secret disciple at some point in time because the Gospels identify Joseph as a, as a secret disciple, a follower of Jesus, but he hadn't yet really stepped into the light. So how do I hold that idea together with other things Jesus said? And, and how do you deal with this in your context of ministering for decades to uh, Arab Muslims in very hard-to-reach places? How do you do this? How do you handle it? And he goes, I'll get back to you Friday. Uh, this was two weeks ago, so I gave him enough time to give me an answer. And he gave me a very brief response. And so he said, he said this, so let's give you his response. In a nutshell, I'm constrained by Jesus' teaching to believe that all who go to heaven must confess Jesus before people. Now, he's going to expand on that again in a moment. It, 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 the language would be before men. And I'll read, I'll read the, way he, uh, it, the verses he quotes. He goes, I, like you, have to admit that secret believers exist because of John 19.38. I also have to believe that, that at some point in time, they'll acknowledge Jesus as the messianic king before people. He'll go further. Jesus, as you know, said in Matthew 10, 32 through 33, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men or before people, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, this is where he expands on that idea because we can go, oh gosh, did I, did I say him in front of enough people? Did I do enough things? Did I, how many times do I have to do this? And re, I've talked about my guilty conscience. Guilty conscience, Hans, that'll really mess with him. Go, well, well, like, I just need to say it every, to everybody I meet. Do I have to say that? What if I don't do it to one person? Because it's like a math problem to me. What if at one point in time I don't have an opportunity to say it and I don't say it, or I do have an opportunity and I don't say it? Like, what, like, is it like, is it, is it momentary? Like, if I, if I get it wrong at this moment, but I did it at the next moment, but then I didn't do it at that moment, like, does Jesus just follow with my you know, inability. That's how your mind can go if it's just like, if it struggles or doubts. <clears throat> he says it like this. He goes, in my thinking, it is critical to emphasize that Jesus is talking about confessing him <clears throat> and not talking about confessing one's belonging to one group or another. 
Now, we might not feel that that matters that much, but in context where it's like, well, you have to be in this church, or you have to be in this denomination, or you have to be in this way, like this is where the true Christians really are, because it's critical in my thinking that you have to recognize it's, it's before people, not one's identity to, well, where do you go to church, right? Is your church a Bible-believing church? Does your church, right, all these things that we tack on to our identification with Jesus. Where is it? How is it? What do they believe? Is their doctrine good? I went to their website. I didn't like the statement of their doctrine. You might want to find a new church because like all these things that start to get into it. Now, I'll say it then like this. At Joseph's time in John 19, this is, when he says time, it's like the, the time to step out. At Joseph's time in John 19, it was all about Jesus and his messiahship. Jesus was the focus of everything. Joseph apparently came to believe in private that Jesus was the Messiah, but he hesitated to let it be known until the beautiful way he stepped forward during the most crucial event in history. The confession of Jesus before people is mandatory. I see no getting around it. We live if we die with him. We die if we live for ourselves. The math is simple. There's no indication as to how this confession is to be made, how public it needs to be. It simply needs to be made before people. And again, it is a confession not of, uh, it is a confession of faith in Jesus, not of membership in a church or anything else. There's a really big issue in places like where we serve. Catholics can't be real if they don't become evangelicals. Muslims cannot be real if they don't become Christians. I think you know where I'm coming from with this. And we see these things. We don't realize that, that as you get into John, even 19 here, that the real life implications for how we follow Jesus and what it means to be identified with Jesus and what's really going on there and the way we try to then apply it to our churches. I shared with John chapter 3 the conversation I had with a woman at the ice cream shop who goes, are you a Christian? I said, I mean, yeah, I think so. And then she said, are you born again? And I didn't know what that meant. Well, are you born again? Are you spirit-filled? Um, like, like have, you, have you had the baptism of the Spirit? All these like secondary, tertiary, other questions that keep getting tacked on to this idea of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Now, the reason... I say this with us, and I say this for us because, I mean, you guys aren't currently on the mission field ministering amongst Arab Muslims. That's not kind of where your world is, I'm, I'm guessing, not yet at least. Why the significance here? Why do I love this passage so much of all the passages we've gone through in John chapter 19? And here's why. Because you see the transformative power of Jesus over time in the lives of people who kept, find, kept finding themselves intrigued by him. But then finally said, no, I am his. And there's a difference in those two spaces. Right? Like, like there's, there's a difference there for me of the one who's just kind of like, well, I'm just, I just like Jesus. I, think he's, I like his teaching. I'm interested in who he is. I find him to be a, a good man, an interesting man. Like all those kinds of things that are rather safe to say about Jesus. Right? He was a compelling figure. He, he taught very well. He seemed to be a master order. You can say many, many things about Jesus that will not get you fired and will not get you killed. But when you say he's the Messiah, the Son of God who came to earth to save sinners like me and you, and there is no other name, as Peter says in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name in heaven or on earth by which men can be saved. That's the stuff you lose your head over. No other name. 
And I say that to us because I will use the word safe. It is safe to be a Christian in Spring, Texas. Depending on how much talk radio you listen to or cable news, you may not feel like that's the case. But that's a farce. You can basically be who you are. I, maybe it's the case for some of you in this room. I have heard no testimony of a Genesis member who lost their job for being a Christian. I've heard no testimony of a Genesis member who was just like totally maligned and mocked and like there was just like hatred and vitriol spewed at them because they belonged to Jesus. I have heard of no, and it's not to say it won't happen, it's not to say it hasn't happened. I've just heard no testimony of people coming to the elders and saying, will you guys please pray for me? I have to make a decision tomorrow at work and it's gonna either be the end of my job and maybe the end of my career in this industry or not. Those don't come up. Why? Because in general, we don't have the weight of a Joseph or Nicodemus decision. But hear me here. Like, I'm not worried about that. I say these things because because for us as followers of Jesus, it really can be rather safe to never say that we even know him as Messiah. We just use all the other things. We just go, yeah, well, I... Go to church. Isn't that enough? There's no, there's no go to church admonition that makes you a Christian, right? Those are all things that like, like the, the behaviors we have as believers, the way we operate, the disciplines we follow, those things come all after as, as, as things from the grace that we have been given, not things for the grace that we have. And so if we're not careful, we spend a lot of time saying, well, I, I mean, I've been in church my whole life. How could you say I'm not a Christian? Well, Jesus, isn't, Jesus isn't saying go to church your whole life. I give to the church, and I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I pray for the church. I like churchy things, and I'm generally nice. We really do culturally have a long list of things that we do that we think would be good enough, and we miss the fact that purely and simply, it is the stepping into the light and identifying ourselves with the Lord Jesus. Not in a specific way. Right? I mean, I've done, the, I've done this. I've done it. Every head bowed, every eye closed you know, hand up thing, you know, I, I talk to people, hey, man, I want to follow Jesus, raise your hand, yeah, I see you, I see you back there, you do all these, I've done those things, right, all I was doing was mimicking a guy I heard do that before, like, like, so, so yeah, I see you, I see you. anybody else, anybody else, anybody else, like, I've done all those things, and you might have been in that moment going, man, I just really like, I love Jesus, but, like, do I have to raise my hand, is that, the, like, like, is that, is that the marker, everybody who raises their hand in a worship service or in a revival, they belong to me, right, like, that becomes the thing that we start to do, and the reason we do that is because we want certainty, right? Like, we, uh, I want to be able to say, well, there was this thing, or there was this moment, or there was this time, or there was this place, or I raised my hand, and it pulled my shoulder, and it kind of still hurts. So like, I clearly know that I follow Jesus because, uh, and we miss the fact that it's about our identification with him. It's about us belonging to him. And the things that we emphasize, and I have been an emphasizer of those things as well, the things that we emphasize aren't the most important. I would just say it like this. Have you identified yourself with Jesus in whatever way the Lord has provided? You're not going to have another Joseph and Nicodemus opportunity. He was buried once. He'd never get buried again, friends. Like, so that's done. And so what opportunities might God have 
placed before us to say, no, I'm, I'm Christ's. Great. Well, what about this, 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 this? One of the reasons I love churches, I talk about this for our church. I'm like, our church, we always have to be reaching down. And I mean that in like, like an age, like always reaching to another generation, always reaching to another generation, newer in faith. Why? Because it reminds us of all the things that we think become so important, aren't that important, right? Like, and so all the things that God has done in our lives, like, well, what, what you know, I mean, like I have eight, eight years, I think, of seminary in my history, eight. You can start to think a lot of things are important after eight years that most people are like, why does that matter at all? And you're like, because I spent 50 grand on it. That's why it, like, that's why it matters. Like, or other people's 50 grand. If it doesn't matter, then you know, it's not, no, I'm very glad for the training I got. I'm very glad for the schools that I've gone to. I love it. I'm so glad. It has changed me. It has transformed me. But if you just huddle up with other mature Christians all the time and you meet an unbeliever, by and large, if they can't recite the Nicene Creed, give you Calvin's five points, and then somehow quote to you the book of Philippians, they don't belong to Jesus. And we, begin, we become so enamored with all these secondary things about what it means to come to Jesus, that we realize we become the church of Ephesus in Revelation that goes, you've forsaken your first love. You don't, you don't, you're not enamored with the Savior. When you're just enamored with the Savior, you're not concerned about the council kicking you out, right? Like, it's, you're not even weighing it anymore. You just go, that's the right thing to do, and if that's the right thing to do, then these other things don't matter, but so often it's about our flesh and our pride and the embarrassment we might feel if we say something, right? Or if we double back to a friend because we were having a conversation and we knew we should have shined light on it because we know something about truth that maybe they don't know, but we don't say it because we're not sure how we would be heard or felt or received. And so we have like 45 hours of like intense, like I should have said that. And we don't go back to them and just go, hey, could I have a redo on that? There's some things I could have said that I didn't say. I'm not, and I didn't say them because I'm afraid of how you would have received them. But honestly, like, I'm not going to give you better words than the words of Jesus on this. And so just give me a redo. The Lord gives us redos all the time, which is great. Right? Like, so so can, I just, can I just go back and say that? This is, now we're no longer at that point in time talking about our, our, our salvation. We're just talking about walking with the Lord and realizing the longer we live, like, let's just, let's just point you back to Jesus. Let's point you back to what he said and what's going on, and let's not make it about all the other things. I, I, I'm looking, I really am, like, like I'm looking forward to getting with Joseph and getting with Nicodemus and just going, tell me about that. Tell me about, like, like what, what happened? What happened between, I don't want everybody to know, and pardon my language, screw it, they're going to find out. Like, 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 what happened there, right? Like, from secret disciple to whatever happens is fine, that man needs to be buried properly. Like, I don't know what, I don't know that flip from one side to the other, but I love that it happened. And I love that it is recorded for us in John chapter 19. And I love that we also have from Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and in John chapter 7, and we find this guy who little by little, movement by movement, is walking into the light. And I want to say this to you who have friends in your life who don't know Jesus, and you've been praying for them for years. We only look at that salvation moment very often as the effective one. 
Now, constitutionally, something does change there. There's a time you don't know the Lord, and there's a time that you do. But if we are only looking for that one moment, then we don't have the conversation with Nicodemus at night that didn't save him, right? It didn't save him. It didn't do something. And if we're only looking for the one moment, then we're going to give up on Nicodemus two years ago because we don't think that he is going to come to the Lord. And we don't realize that what's actually gone is that some of the hardness of his heart has been chipped away in that conversation. That he's not, he's not over the line, so to speak. He doesn't belong to the Lord at that moment. But a negative five became a negative four, and you don't know it because a negative four is still lost. And so we just go, I don't know what God's doing here. I don't know what's happening here. And then there's a moment, there's a moment where a zero becomes a one. And if we're only looking for that one moment, we don't realize and we don't labor with years for people who just need to have their questions answered, who just really do sit and wonder and watch and wait. But if we trust what Jesus has said in his word, then we will allow for all kinds of time for people to watch and wait, trusting that the Lord provides the opportunity to profess him before people. We don't force it. We don't manufacture it. We, we don't do it. Like the Lord provides the opportunity to profess Jesus. And so we stay at it. For those of you who have been praying for family members and friends for decades that they might be changed. I know prayer requests of some of the people in this room who go, I just want my daughter. I just want my son. I just want my grandkids to know the Lord. It's all I want. And it's been our whole lives. But the thing is, as we see in John 19, we don't know what's stirring. We don't know what's stirring. We don't know what kind of curiosities might actually be there. We don't know how much they might go, there is something different there. There is something going on in that person's life. There is something about Jesus that I'm just not sure about. Because we just want that hand-raised moment. So I say it like this. Step into the light and use what you have. The challenge is just that. I can't make a way. I can't make a provision. I can't make a time. Step into the light. If you've been curious about Christ, step toward him. If you've held back, open up your hand. He's risen. Use what you have the same way these men did. Relationship resources, just go, yeah, it seems like the Lord's put me in the space to do that, and I'll do that too. These two men of influence were changed by the Messiah. And that change took time, a lot of time and study, and wonder, and curiosity, and nighttime conversations, and fireside chats, and whatever else came about. And the Lord used every one of them to get to this moment where Jesus' body was prepared. It was buried behind a stone that's about to be rolled away. And Josephus, there you go, Joseph and Nicodemus. I knew it was coming. Yeah, 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 I'm there. Joseph and Nicodemus belong to Jesus. It is glorious.
and all the other things that get into your head about, well, what if, or how come, or what about this, or what about that. The Christian life is a life of dying. You just go, I can't, I can't live by what ifs, what abouts, or embarrassment. I'm the Lord's. And I will let him do whatever he needs in my life. Because he's better. 